when we were in worship, uh, the Lord was putting something on my heart. And so before I move into the, the word for the day, I wanted to share some of what I felt like he was speaking to me during worship. And there was a powerful moment. I, can't remember, I think it was in Psalm, the, the third song. And I just started getting flooded with these memories of God's faithfulness in my life. And the, fir- the first memory that came to mind was when I was a junior in college and I had just started getting serious about the Lord and really wanting to go hard after him. But I had such little faith that everything felt like a struggle. Like reading my Bible felt like a struggle, like Lauren was saying. Like I'd read it and it just didn't feel like there was anything there. And then I'd go and pray and I didn't know how to pray. And so it was really hard to pray and I'd, you know, mostly feel disconnected from God. Like I'd leave my prayer times feeling more disconnected from God than like connected to him because I just didn't know what I was doing. And then I'd encounter things and I'd, I want so badly to have trust in him, but I just wouldn't. Like if I was honest with myself, I like wouldn't. There's a bunch of fear and anxiety and stuff. And like prayer was just a frustrating event. You know, like worshiping, I felt like, man, my mind was scattered in 16 million different directions. And, uh, and it was this like frustrating exercise of trying to like grab my thoughts and pull them back. And I then started thinking about my experience of God today. And I was like, my gosh, like, I'm now in a place where there's nothing on earth I'd rather do than worship the Lord. You know, that like, when I seek him, I find him. When I go and I look in my word and I ask the spirit of God to illuminate for me, he gives me answers. And I just like looked back and I felt like between that point and this point, there were so many times where God stepped in and put hunger in my heart or stepped in and sustained me with the voice of a friend or stepped in and gave me the pastor that I needed in the time or stepped in and gave me the touch or the guidance and like Getting to watch that, I was just thinking about how faithful he is and that one day we'll get to stand with him in heaven and we'll be able to look at our lives and go like, I can't believe how faithful you were. You were there every, every step. You were there. You know, like when I thought you weren't there, you were there. You were holding me up. And when I thought you were over here, man, you were there too. And there's going to be this like testimony of God's sometimes invisible and sometimes very visible hand in all of our lives sustaining us and pulling us towards our destiny, which is to be conformed into the image of Christ himself. It says in Romans chapter 8 that we're predestined to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. That's not just fancy Bible speak. That says that your destiny is to look like Jesus, to think like him, to feel like him, to reflect the image of God like him. And there's this faithful, silent hand in all of our lives that's just prompting us towards him all the time, just like moving with us all the time. And I especially wanted to talk to um, a few people. One, if you feel like you're in that place that I was talking about before, where it's frustrating and it's tough and it's empty and it's minds everywhere and you don't feel like you have a lot of faith, that's okay. The Bible says that we go from faith to faith. You know, Unpacking that verse, being in a place of faithlessness sucks. Like when you're trying to do the God thing and you're not very good at it or you don't have that much faith, it's really tough. Like you you, you kind of like, you push through. But the promise of scripture is that you go from faith to faith. And my experience of the Christian walk is that it just keeps getting better and better and better and better and better and better. Every week, every year, every week is probably pushing it, (laughs) actually. I think, of, I think of my Christian walk like, like a, a stock market chart where it's kind of like this, but it's always up and to the right, you know, that kind of thing over, the, over a long enough period of time. But like, you're going from faith to faith is what I wanted to say to you. His promise is, is that you de- as you depend upon the Holy Spirit for the most important thing in your life, which is your relationship with God, as you depend on, your, on the Holy Spirit, you stop putting your trust in yourself and you say, I'm trusting in you to be the leader of this relationship. You will go from faith to faith. You will go from where you are to a deeper place of faith where next time you come into the same storm, you're just like, wow, I just trust God this time. Like, I actually 
Sometimes I don't even know when that stuff happens. You know, you go through something and you're all over the place, and the next time you go through it and you're like, wow, I'm just, I'm just good somehow. Like, I'm not affected in the same way that I was last time. And there's this very real faith-to-faith thing that happens that's going on in your life and it's going on in my life. And what I want to say is hang in there. Keep going. Jesus is so worth it. He is so worth it. And part of the, the, that experience for me was the Lord was bringing to mind different people in the church where I was like, that's what you're doing in this person right now. Oh, that's what you're doing in this person right now. That's exactly what they need. Oh, that's what's going on with that person? Man, that's exactly what they need. And God's like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm giving my kids exactly what they need. And so just hang in there. Put your trust in the Spirit of God and your relationship with Him, and you will go from faith to faith, and it'll just keep getting better and better. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. So we just came out of, um, we're going through the book of Matthew. Uh, We just came out of chapter 7, which is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, possibly the greatest teaching of all time from Matthew uh, chapter 5 all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And we're now leaving that section where Matthew put this block of teaching, and it says that Jesus came down off the hill, and what we now get is a series of 10 miracles. So we're going to go through the next few weeks. I'm only going to cover one of them today, but we're going to go through this, this series of miracles that we get to see God in action. We get to see the exact representation of God on earth walking around, showing us his will, teaching us lessons. It's, it's so amazing. And the, the funny thing is when I was reading this and unpacking it, I was thinking like, you go through a teaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and you expect a bunch of theology. And then you go into the life of Christ, like when he's just moving around and doing stuff, and I'm like, this is the part where it gets like inspiring. This is awesome. Like you kind of leave theology zone and you go into like, you know, the flashbang zone or something like that, where it's like the fun stuff. But as I unpack this thing, there's probably more theology in this story of Jesus than, well, I'm not going to compare it to anything. There's a lot of theology in this story of Jesus. I was going to say that in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, that's crazy. That's not true. There's a lot. And what I realized is theology is the study of God, right? So watching God in action, watching Jesus on the earth is like, that's pretty good theology. Let's find out, let's, let's do some theological study here as we read about Jesus and how he walked around on the earth um, and how it connects, in this case, to the Old Testament and uh, really the beginning of time. So Matthew chapter 8, here we go. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. A leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So let's unpack this. So Jesus comes down off the mountain. He just leaves going the Sermon on the Mount. There's this massive group of people that's listening to him teach. And no surprise, they continue to follow him after he's done teaching, right? Like if I heard a teaching like that, I'd be like, yeah, I know you're done, but I'm following you wherever you go. So let's go. So there's this horde that's behind him and he's cruising through, it doesn't tell us where, but you know, some, some place. And a leper comes running up to him. And bows down at his feet and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What's not obvious from the text is leprosy is a really important thing in the Bible. It's mentioned, I think, 56 times, a lot of times, for a skin disorder, right? Like, it's kind of it's strange how much it's, it's mentioned in the Bible. Um, and that's for a very good reason. It's because leprosy is a great depiction of the effects of sin in the earth. And so what we see in the Old Testament, in the Levitical laws, there's very specific rules given for somebody with leprosy. 
And specifically what it is is that the person is supposed to be put out from the camp, isolated by themselves until they come back into a place of being clean. Miraculously, they get healed by God or that's kind of the only option. And so there's like very specific Levitical laws around it. In the New Testament, the interesting thing is here, we come in and we see this leper. So we, Jesus comes and, and a leper runs up to him. First of all, that's not cool. Lepers don't run up to clean people. You can get leprosy, so that's like, first of all, it doesn't feel very considerate. But second of all, it's very illegal. They are not allowed to do this. And so this guy's taking a massive risk by running up to the feet of Jesus, surrounded by a horde of people. The people in this situation were probably like, what is this guy doing? Keep this disgusting guy away from me. If you've seen the effects of leprosy, they're very obvious on the outside. And so you've got to get this picture. It doesn't, it doesn't pull out the full detail here, but this is like, first of all, huge social faux pas, 100% illegal, and like, most people would just be like, is he crazy? Is he completely inconsiderate running up to us like this? High risk factor for this guy. Like, social scorn. Probably why it didn't matter to this guy is the life of leprosy was awful. It was awful. If you think about what a leper would experience in this family, I mean, in this society, no family is the start of it. You can't be in, you can't be in your home anymore. You can't be in the city anymore. You're cut off from community, not just family. All of your best friends that you grew up with and threw the rock around with, I guess is probably like, I don't know. What, I was going to say ball, and then I'm like, that probably didn't work out like that. But like throwing the rock around with, like all of those people, you're instantly cut off from them. The people of God, you're not allowed to go to church anymore temple. You're not allowed to go to the temple anymore. The old rabbis that you used to sit under and, and glean wisdom and insight from, you can't go to them either. You're literally banished outside of the town in a way that there's, there's no entertainment, there's no good food, there's no connection to people, there's no religious life. It's complete isolation for lepers. On top of that, the religious of that day assumed that leprosy was a curse from God. And so not only that, think of what would happen to your identity and your connection with God in this situation, where your religious leaders are saying, wow, you must have done something really bad for God to curse you like that. Like you're outside the camp until he deems to forgive you and then maybe heal you. This is like a this is a brutal thing. This is not just a skin disease. This is not just something that Jesus comes and like hurts, like heals the guy's rash, right? Like this is all-encompassing thing. This is something that hits the guy's body. This is something that hits the guy's soul. And this is something that hits the guy's spirit. Every part of your being is affected by this. And the reason why the Bible brings it up so much and treats it so seriously in the Old Testament is because this is the perfect illustration of the power of sin in people's lives. Now, if you've been going to this church for any amount of time, you know that I am not one to glorify the power of sin. Hang on with me as we go through this part, because the power of Jesus overcomes this part, and that's the good part, but we have to go through this part to get to that part. Without a Savior, this is the power of sin. Sin is no joke. God is so serious about it because he knows it's no joke. And what we see here is sin, man, it starts as something that's not that big of a deal. It starts as a little thing that shows up on your skin, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that is. And then the next thing you know, it spreads to, like, some part of your body, and then you're like, oh, no, this may be, maybe this thing is kind of like a bigger deal. And then it ends up cutting you off from community. And then it ends up destroying your relationships, and then it ends up cutting you off from your relationship with God. And usually it doesn't start right there because if like all of this stuff had happened immediately right when the sin entered your life, you'd be like, this thing's disgusting. Like I'm not touching this. But it usually looks kind of, it looks okay up front. It's like not that big of a deal. And then you enter into it 
and it ends up taking down all of these areas of your life where the next thing you know, you're banished outside of community, not able to connect deeply with people. There's this path of hurt that exists in your life. Casualty of casualty of relationship, disconnected. And then you're, and then you, you, you know, like, it just takes over. And the reason why the Bible treats leprosy in this way is because it's such a clear depiction of the power of sin. This was a brutal, brutal disease. And so one of the things that we see here straight out of the gates is that this guy is bold, man. Like, he's got this disease. He's got this judgment from society. He's got all this stuff. And he comes in well aware of the power of the disease and sin in this particular case. And he comes right up to the feet of Jesus. And he says, basically, hey, I know you've got the power to heal me. If you will, you can do it. It's a really interesting statement, right? Like, there's a level of faith in it. I mean, this is a big risk. So there's a level of faith in it. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, if you will, you can do this. And he bows down before him. This is a clear recognition of Jesus' power, his ability to heal in this case. And he submits to his will in this extreme statement of trust. You got you to gotta get this. This is amazing. This is amazing. This particular effect of sin has taken over this guy's life. He's in this horrible place. And he comes and he bows before Jesus and he says, I know you can do this, but it's your, it's, it's your decision to do this that needs to be your decision. Do you guys get that? That's a huge deal. I don't know that I would have interacted with Jesus in the same way if I was a man of leprosy and I truly believed he could fix it. I'd get before him and I'd be like, you have got to fix this. You have to. Like, do it now. You have, to, you have got to fix this right now, right? Like, I would have stripped him of his choice as best I could. I will jump on you if you don't fix this thing right now. But there's a power in this guy's prayer that's really challenging for us. He sees the marks of sin all over his life. And he comes to the Savior and he goes, I know you can fix this if you want to. I want you to. Will you? And then he enables God to choose in and say, yes, I will. That is a powerful thing in prayer. I think not even, even if we just take it out of the answer category of like how you get answers from God, but this is what love relationship looks like with your Savior. It's dependence upon him. It's allowing his will to matter more than yours. And this guy, in the most dire of situations, says, you know what my will is. If you will, you can do this. That, that's how great relationship, that's how great love works, that's how great prayer works. You know, when you're in a good marriage, that's how it works. Hey, this is what matters to me. I put that into your court, and I allow you to choose in to the extent that you want to choose in. That's what great friendship looks like. You go to your friends and you go, you know what it would look like to really love me? This isn't coming with the obligation strings attached thing, but we have a good relationship, so I want you to know me. Like, I want you to really know what matters to me. You know what would really love me is I, I love pho, especially when I'm sick. Suki and I have had the flu all week, so this is like, you guys have brought Suki pho like almost every day of the week. <laughs> Nobody brought me pho. <laughs> I don't make my needs known as well as my wife does. It's my fault. It's my fault. I did not take advantage of Facebook and say I'm sick and want fun. <laughs> this is what great prayer looks like. This is what great marriage looks like. This is what great relationships look like. It's what great friendship looks like. This guy does it amazingly well. To do love, there has to be an extension of trust. 
to do love, there's got to be this thing where you say, I know you can do this if you want to. If you want to. And it's not manipulation. And it's not manipulation. The person is empowered to choose out if they want to. If they're not empowered to choose out, it's not love. That's control. It's a different way of saying, you must do this for me if you want to be in relationship with me. But what great relationships look like is making yourself known and then putting the power in the other person's hands and saying, if you will, this would sure mean a lot to me. And this guy, ravished, just ravaged by sin, life destroyed and in the dirt, affecting every vector of life. I mean, like just every aspect of life is touched by this thing. And he comes to Jesus and he extends that kind of trust to Jesus. It's amazing. He leaned into the Lord, allowed him to choose in, and Jesus does. We get to see what happens when you you put your trust in God. He comes with this bold, risky thing, and then he puts his trust in God. It's incredible. Imagine, like, the part of the... Have you ever asked God where it feels like something risky? Or maybe not asked God because it felt like it might have been too risky? I certainly have, right? You're like, I don't know. It's usually something, like, when you talk about this kind of thing, it's usually something trivial. Recently, I was going out for a job. And... Uh, through the process, I ended up starting to really want it. And it was one of those things where, like, as I started to feel my heart really want it, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, God, I only really want this if you want this. But I also want to make my desires known. So, like, I'm going to make my desires known, but your will be done, not my will be done. But my will matters to you. So, like, what am I doing here? It's like this spin of prayer. Have you guys ever had the spin of prayer thing? Yes, okay. There's a part of your heart that, like, is scared to risk, in that moment. There's a part of your heart that's scared to just say, God, this really matters to me. And I put it in, I put it in your power. And your will be done. And then if it doesn't happen, it doesn't rip your heart apart because you actually have released it to the Lord. That's what this guy is doing. That's what great prayer looks like. It's the small things of life where you're able to say, Lord, this really matters to me. And you do that real business with God with the stuff that really matters in a risky place. This is this guy's last chance. What does he have if Jesus says no? He's done. He's done. This is the ultimate risk of the last shred of this guy's heart. And he puts it before the Lord and says, your will be done. And then Jesus touches him. Jesus touches him. And says, I will be clean. This guy hasn't experienced touch in years. Imagine how healing that would be, not just to your body, but to your heart and your dignity and the deepest parts of you. As the most important man in this town and getting more and more famous, little did he know is the king of kings. But like extends his hand and you feel touch again for the first time in years. And you're bowed with your face in the dirt, and you feel the hand on your back, and the whole crowd goes, like, what is he doing? Like, this is beyond. And you feel the hand on your back, and he says, be clean. And then you look down on your arms, and all of a sudden, your skin's like a baby. And you're like, Oh my gosh, this flood of emotion comes up, right? Like this guy, Jesus doesn't just stand back from him, disconnected and go, be healed. (laughs) Right? He gets in the nastiness. He gets in the the junk of it. Like he connects with the sin part, of the, the effects of sin in this guy's life. He doesn't step back from it as a judge and go like, gross, like look what you've done to yourself. He gets his hands right on it, and he says, be clean. And the guy's heart is cleaned, and the guy's skin is cleaned. And then at the end, he says, and by the way, go show yourself to the priest so that you can be restored to community and society. As the religious leaders pronounce over you that you're clean and you're welcome back into the society. 
it's this beautiful picture of holistic healing that Jesus offers. Where he's not scared of the power of sin. When I was talking about leprosy, I was talking about all of the power of sin. All of the things that it can do. And then the Savior steps on the scene and he puts his hands in it. Bill Johnson, one of my favorite teachers, he says this. He says, in the Old Testament, when the leper touches you, you get unclean. When the Savior steps on the scene, he touches you and you get clean. It's the exact opposite. The Old Testament, all it reveals to us is the power of sin and the need for a Savior. In the New Testament, Jesus steps on the scene and he says, yes, sin is powerful. You don't want to mess around with it. It's nasty, and apart from me, it will destroy your life just like it has for this leper. But I can come in a minute. I can come, it says immediately is the way it puts in here. Right after he invites him in, he puts his hand in the mess, and immediately the guy is transformed. And he says, yes, it's powerful, but it's not more powerful than me. And so it's, it's, it's like this thing that Lauren was talking about where we as Christians, we can't trivialize the power of sin in our life. Like we can't say that the power of leprosy doesn't look like that. You know, like it's real. It will ravage, it, 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 will, it will take apart and pull apart your life. But Jesus is just an ask away. That's why this whole thing of like, in the church magnifying sin to be so big in our reality, it's like sin's only as big as Jesus isn't standing right there. Like, do you think when this guy's done with this, he looks back and he goes like, he's talking about the sin for the rest of his life? No, for, forevermore he goes, this is what happened. This is where I was. I was destroyed. I was ripped apart. That was the power of sin. Jesus came in a moment, put his hands in my problems, and he removed them. We don't trivialize sin because apart from Jesus, it will destroy lives. But we also don't glorify and magnify sin once we have a savior. Like how crazy is that if the guy's like, Jesus has got his hands on his back and he's like, but, but I'm still thinking bad thoughts. And you know, like he's still like consumed with this sin mindset. No, 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 you turn around and you look at the most beautiful person in the world and what he just did for you and forevermore you're consumed with the person of Jesus. And anytime sin tries to come back in your life and you go, no, 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 I know what that offers. The Savior is the one that I have my eyes fixed on now. This is the one that I'm following. And so the, the, the power of this stuff, uninteresting. This is the way I'm going. It's a really interesting thing in this passage. Scholars debate, like, was Jesus breaking the law here? Because, like, in the Old Testament, it says pretty clearly, if you touch a leper, you become unclean. And it's like, absolutely not. In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to put the law aside. I came to fulfill it. And the idea of the law was, we're going to show you desperately need a Savior, and the Savior comes on top of that, and he comes right into it, and he fulfills it with cleanness because he doesn't become unclean. The other one becomes clean. The idea of the law is what's unclean? That's the question in the law. And so Jesus doesn't come break the law because he doesn't become unclean. That's the whole heart and spirit of the law. He comes in. And he, become, and he brings cleanness with him. And instead of becoming unclean, he becomes clean. So cool. So, so cool. When I was thinking about this dynamic, I was thinking about the time in my life where I was really trying to get serious about God. And uh, I came out of a past where I was drinking a ton. Like, a ton. Like, a lot. Like, in, in, in high school was, like, my heaviest drinking days. Uh, on, like, a normal weekend night, we would buy a 12-pack each, drink that, and then go back later and get a few more beers. Like, we were drinking a ton, and we'd do that, like, all the time. And so 
you know, this is what happens when you're in that kind of lifestyle. Your friends are down for that. You're down for that. Your community is built around that. It kind of comes a part of your identity. Like, you know, you, you kind of have a little life that's built around these areas, in this case, of my sin. And so I had this life that was kind of built around my sin. And I remember when I started to really, like, want God, and I started to getting woken up to the idea that the promise of alcohol and hooking up was not actually being fulfilled. Like, what it claimed to do was not actually happening in my life. Like, I wanted it to fill something in me that, that allowed me to settle and say, like, you're good. Like, hey, like, you're good, you know? Like, I wanted somebody that mattered, that had the power to do this, to just come to me and lay their hand on me and say, hey, like, you're good. Like, who you are. Like, you're good, you know? Not in the sense of, like, righteousness, but, like, who am I? Like, the, the, the thing of identity was killing me at the time. I would walk into a party, and unless I was, my dad used to call it three sheets to the wind. That's, like, being super drunk. <laughs> unless I was three sheets to the wind... I would be so self-conscious as I walked through that party. And so I like had to numb myself because I was worried that I'd go up to somebody and they'd reject me or, you know, I'd go dance and people would be like, oh my gosh, that guy can't dance. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I, can't, I can't dance very well. And so I would numb myself. And then I'd drink and I'd hook up with a girl and I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, that was awesome. And then two days later, it would be right back to the same thing where I'm like, oh, wow, I feel like not that awesome. And so I started to see that the promise of sin was not actually producing the life that it said it was going to produce. But my whole world was, was set up camp around this thing. And I felt so powerless to exit it. And I wanted so badly to just say, I love God enough to not do this anymore. You guys ever felt that way? Man, I want to say that I love God so much that I don't, that my faith is so big that I know that if I just like get this stuff out of my life, it's not going to have an effect or whatever. But I think when I really got down to it, I couldn't say that. Because I'd prove over and again with my actions that that wasn't the case. Until finally I got to the end of the line where I said, God, I would like you to make this miserable for me. Because I realize that I'm so weak that until you make this miserable for me, then I'm going to probably keep doing it. And I don't want to keep doing it because I know it'll, be, it'll cut me off from you. I'll be walking around with guilt in my life the whole time. I'll be cut off from my community because like, you know, you wake up after a night after 15 beers, you probably said some stupid stuff. Like, oh man, I got to clean up my mess again. It's like go back and like heal all these relationships. Just the effects, right? The not good stuff. But it wasn't until I was like really honest with the Lord and didn't allow my shame to keep me from that moment where I was like, even in an area where I can't even say that I love you enough to give this stuff up or I trust you to give this stuff up enough, I can say that I would like this out of my life. And I can say that I would love for you to make this miserable for me so that I can get it out of my life because then I'll be choosing it selfishly and I probably have the power to do that. <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am, right? These were like my early honest moments with the Lord. This is the stuff that I was talking about where I like dared to risk, like, could he even be this good that he would answer a prayer that's coming from this place that's, like, almost devoid of faith? And within pretty short order, this is my experience, I trusted that into the hands of the Lord, within pretty short order, drinking became disgusting to me. Like, I'd go and, like, within a couple beers, I'd be like, I'm so over this. And it took a few months. Like, it wasn't just like, I, I wish I could say to you, like, it happened once. I'm like, oh, my gosh, my prayer's been answered. I'm out of here, you know. But the Lord answered that prayer. The Lord answered that prayer. And there's kind of an interesting thing that happens at the end of this passage that I wanted to share with you guys as I, as I start to wrap things up here. 
So Jesus extends his hands. He says, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy leads his body and he's clean. Jesus says to him, see that you tell no one. It's really interesting. How does this relate to my story? It kind of seems like, I won't make the statement that this is true because this is my early observation, but it kind of seems like it might not be the best thing for Jesus that he heals this guy. There's something that scholars call the messianic secret. It's for another time, but there's some reason that Jesus wanted to keep his messiahship a secret for a while. And so we see him doing stuff like this where he'll be moved with compassion, he'll reach out, he'll touch someone, they'll get healed, and then he'll go, don't tell anybody. (laughs) It's almost like his heart and his compassion for the person trumps this like other thing that he's got going on where he's like he says to his wife he goes his wife whoa (laughs) back up the truck I told you it was my opinion this is not true his mom in John chapter 2 she goes, hey, there's no booze at this party. We ran out of wine. It's a big deal. Like, I'm in charge of this party. Can you help us out? And he goes, hey, it's not my time. He goes, it's not my time to be revealed yet. And she just goes, it's kind of like this, actually. She kind of goes, well, the ball's in your court. She says to the servants, do, do whatever he tells you to do. And then she walks away, right? It's like, if you know what you're good for you, son, you know it's good for you, son, you're going to do this, right? And he does it. Right after saying, hey, it's not my time to be revealed. It's not my time for everybody to know who I am yet. And so it's almost like this guy runs up to him, puts all this trust in his camp, and he goes, man, this is actually, it almost feels like he's having to trump this other thing that he's got going on, but it's almost like he can't help himself. He's so moved with compassion, he's like, absolutely. Like, are you kidding? Absolutely. And I think sometimes, like, I'm so scared that I'll pray something that might not be the perfect will of the Lord that I end up not praying the desires of my heart. In Jesus' mom's case, that actually wasn't perfectly in line with his plan. He says it very plainly. In this case, it kind of seems like that because he's like, hey, don't tell anyone what I did. Meanwhile, there's a mass of people behind him. So, like, I don't know what's going on there. But it kind of reminds me of my prayer where I'm like, man, do I even dare prayer that pray this kind of thing? Do I even risk this kind of thing where Jesus could be like, are you kidding me? Like, you can't even muster up more than that? If I'm going to do something for you, you need to do at least something. And then shame on our life keeps us in a place where we won't go, no, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm that weak. And I recognize that I'm weak but I actually believe that you're that good at least enough to ask the question and to put it into your camp. And sometimes it's the, I'll put it into your camp because I ain't got nowhere else to go. Like the disciples get to that moment. It's like, are you going to leave too? He's like, where the heck else are we supposed to go? It's like, I've tried everything else. It doesn't work. And so there's this like beautiful moment at the end where Jesus is like, see to it that you tell no one. We'll talk about the messianic secret in the past. And then he says, go show yourself to the priests and present to them an offering so that, so that it's a testimony to them, offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There's so much beautiful theology in this passage. The heart of God, his mind, how he operates, is revealed in everything that he does. Sometimes we have bad moments where our actions don't align with what we think and what we wish was true. That's not how it worked for Jesus. When he did something, his whole being was in alignment. So every action that he took is a statement of theology. And so we look at this passage of Jesus and we go, this is the kind of theology that I want to know. Where sin just comes and ravages lives and tears them apart, and Jesus comes right on the heels of it and says, there's a new season here. And he puts his hands on that life, and he gets in the muck, and he heals it. There's a few challenges that I see here, both from the leper's life as well as from the life of Jesus that I want to pray into, but I wanted to ask Suki if she wanted to come up and share anything. 
So I was wondering if I should share this because it's actually kind of personal for me. Um, so recently, um, I won't say like names or anything, but my, my kids are about to go to school. And I don't know, a lot of you guys don't know, but life is a little crazy in the Longfield household. I have two toddlers, one's, um, one's almost four and one's uh, about two and a half. And we run a church and, you know, life is just running full steam ahead, you know. And we're trying to run a household and everything. And um, I was trying to pick a school for my kids. And I put down a deposit for one school. And, um, but I just, I just, and it, and it was like a six, seven month long process of deciding. But actually, to be honest, I had been thinking about it even when McKenna was merely months old. I'd, I'd done my first school visit when she was like two months old. <laughs> I kid you not. So I've been thinking about this, where my kids are gonna go to school thing forever. You know, I've been, I was like on the websites looking for schools while she was in my womb, okay? And so, like, for Ryan, he's like, eh, they can go wherever, just go to public school, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, no, I have this, like, thing. I want it to be this thing for them. And so I put down a deposit for my kids. And, but the whole entire time, I had this nagging in my heart. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know if, if this is the right place. And I just kept going back and forth, back and forth, being like wishy-washy, back and forth. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was sick of myself. You know, and every couple nights I'd be like, right, do you think this is the right place or this place? He's like, you already put down a deposit. Like, just be done with it. And you know, the dime would keep going and all of a sudden I had to pay the full, you know, the thing. And I, I finally was like, I just don't have peace about it. And so I took my kids to this other school, and I was just like, immediately the moment I took them in, I was like, yeah, this is the right place that I need to take them. And so I wrote, we called and we wrote the other school, and we're like, hey, um, we've decided not to have our kids go here. And they're, can we have, <laughs> I didn't know that it would be bad, but I was like, can we have our deposit back, right? <coughs> so <laughs> I'm like, I'm nice, I'm expecting them to be nice, right? <laughs> It's a school, they care about children. <laughs> and, um, and, and they basically write back, they're like, uh, no, <laughs> you sign a contract. Um, and not only are we not giving you back your deposit, but you have to pay the full tuition for both kids for the entire year. And I was laying in bed and I was like, <laughs> and I'll just let you guys know, I won't tell you guys how much, but Having kids is cheap. Having other people watch your kids is expensive. <laughs> you can have as many kids as you want if you watch them yourself. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, in my heart, though, I was like, I don't know what to do because I feel like this, it was such a battle to decide on this place. But now, and, you know, how are we going to get out of this? And, you know, we end up sitting basically going through a couple exchange of emails and basically legally, financially on the line for this decision that I made. And I remember everything in me, it was kind of, um, I, was, I was praying and everything in me was like, God, why didn't I read the fine print? Like I really, I just didn't read, like legally, like I, I read through the contract that I signed and I was like, I signed this. Why don't I remember that I signed this? Why don't I remember that I read this? And I was praying and I was just like, God, I have no one to blame. I did this. And, but I really love my kids. And it, I really want them to go to the right place for them. And I feel really bad that because of my carelessness and because I've been running life at this breakneck pace that now they have to go somewhere that I, that I don't feel like is right for them. And it's my mistake, God. And I, you know, and I prayed an honest prayer and I was like, I know you don't have to fix this. You don't have to. The right thing would be just pay them and send my kids to this other place and that'd be fine. But I just, I was like, but God, I could just come before you like a kid too. 
and I ask you, would you, would you help me fix my mess? <coughs> you know, and, and I felt like there was literally, like, no way. We're sitting there, you know, about to go into the principal's office to talk to this lady, you know, and we're in there for, like, an hour, and pretty much the conversation looks pretty much like this. You're stupid. You signed it. There's no way you're getting off the hook. Um, for about an hour, you know, and and um, and immediately the last thing, basically the lady says, "All right, well, I guess we don't have any conclusion, so let's just uh, we'll meet again next time." And I'm just, and all of a sudden, I felt like something dropped in my lap, and I was like, "Well, how about this?" And I gave them a, 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 this suggestion, um, and all of a sudden everybody in the room was quiet and they're like oh maybe and um, it was a solution of deferred admission so that way they don't break their contract and our kids eventually will go there but just not now which I didn't even think was possible but I felt like it was a gift from Jesus and like as we were walking out I felt like God was just saying like I know you made a mistake but I love you and I love your kids so much that even in a way where it seems like everything's so binding, I'm going to make a way. And I felt like even as I was going in, there's this um, passage in um, the book of Hosea. It says, I will make a door in the valley of Acre. Like sometimes in a place where it feels like there's just bad situations and bad choices and sorrow and pain, which is what the valley of Acre represents. It's a longer story in, in the Old Testament. But sometimes it feels like there's no way, and sometimes he can open a door. And um, I just feel like sometimes our prayers, there are moments where what God wants is just to be right, because he wants to teach us something. And there's sometimes what God wants to just teach us is that he loves us. And when we go and when we ask, I think it's the boldness to know that his character and his goodness is that he does love us that much. And so... I just want to exhort everyone that our, our Jesus is really kind. Don't be afraid to go up to him. I don't know what your family experience and what it feels like when you ask for things. I didn't have a family culture where asking for things was safe, so I never asked for anything, you know? Because um, the answer was always no. Always no or why. And sometimes just th the mere asking of why is enough to freeze you in your place. But that's not what Jesus did. And even in this situation, which had very real ramifications, like my God helped. And my God is not different than your God. And so I share this as a testimony. This is not the same thing as leprosy, but like it's the same in that it's the same Jesus, it's the same God, and he's got the same heart, and we're the same kids. And so I just want to um, encourage everyone with that. All right. Cool. So let's stand. I'm going to invite Stephen Joy back up. Let's do some business with the Lord. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who hear my words and put them into practice, their lives will be built upon the rock. The ones that hear my words and don't do anything with them, their lives will be built upon sand. And so when we hear a message, the Spirit of God highlights different things about that message to us. And the best first step in most cases to responding to whatever you were hearing, whatever you were feeling in your life, is to pray with somebody. There's this like beautiful power that, you, that God talks about in the Bible about praying with another person. For the two of you come together and say, yes, like, let's pray for one another and come together and agree upon what we would like to have happen. And there's just such power in that. So we're going to have people up here ready to pray for you. I would encourage you to come get prayer. There's a couple of specific places that I'd in invite people to get prayer. One is inspired from the leper. He knows Jesus' power and he submits to his will, even in the hardest of situations. And so if there's something going on in your life that it feels like, whether it's the effect of sin 
like it was for the leper in the sense that it's just you're feeling a destroyed relationship or something going on with you personally that doesn't feel like it's affecting others, but it's cutting you off from your relationship with God. Could be a number of different things. But in the hardest of situations, this leper comes to Jesus and he says, I know you can do this if you will, and I put it into your court. And I trust you with the most important thing to me. And really, it's his entire future when you boil it down. And then there's a part that has to do with Jesus where Jesus knows the power of sin. He knows that the power of God is greater. And he gets close enough to show the will of God in this situation. And in this particular area, what I want to highlight is we don't ever want to trivialize sin. If you trivialize sin, you'll never bring it to Jesus to get healing. It'll just be the thing in your life that you tolerate. That's not what the leper did. The leper would have stayed with leprosy if he had done that. He knows the power of it because he's lived under it. He takes it to Jesus. He puts it at his feet and he says, I need freedom from this thing because I know life does not exist here. And even if I think that life might exist here, like I was in my, in my drinking days, I'm pretty sure that it doesn't, and I ask you to do whatever you need to do to get me into that place where I can be reconnected with people. I can be reconnected with my God. I don't have to think about this all the time whenever I pray. Like, Lord, bring me the freedom that comes from living a holy lifestyle, from living one where I've put my faith in you, I've put my trust in you. So if you want to do that for the 10th time or you want to do that for the first time, or if you want to come up and confess something and say, man, I've allowed this to, to exist in my life for far too long and I want the Savior to put his hands in it and fix it, then there's going to be room for that as well. So let's pray and then we'll start some worship and then we can, uh, we can do some business with the Lord. Jesus, I thank you that getting to watch your life is so inspiring, so perfect, so beautiful, so amazing. We get to see what love looks like in action. We get to see somebody who comes as the Savior ready to undo the work and the power of the enemy in this world. That literally you came to undo the work of the devil just like you did in this leper's life. You've done it for a church full of people here and you'll do it for anybody who calls on your great name. And so Spirit of God, I just ask that you'd be working and moving in this room. I pray that you're your will would be done as we do business with you. And so we make space for that and we worship your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.